Our Father in God, we are so appreciative today of your wonderful love and mercy and grace and kindness to us. We understand this morning that not any of us are worthy of our salvation. We thank you, Father, that you loved us, Christ loved us when we were sinners, when we were enemies, when we were unlovable. And now through the Holy Spirit's ministry and through your work in our lives, at least we're able to be a little bit more Christ-like in our walk. Thank you for the opportunity we've had this week to meet with brethren, some that we've never met before. We thank you for them. Some, Father, that we've met with before and have enjoyed the fellowship, we thank you again for this renewed time. Now bless the word to our hearts. May the Spirit be the teacher. May we be attentive to his ministry. In our Savior's name, amen. I'm going to just briefly touch upon the epistle of James, and uh, then we're going into the book of Daniel. But lest we are not able to cover this material, I'd like to have you turn with me to the last chapter of James and the thought of the prayer of faith saving the sick. In James, the fifth chapter, beginning with verse 13, Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over them, anointing him with oil in the name of our Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up, and if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Uh, I picked up a book up at the... Uh, area where Mrs. Baker is teaching her class, and it is titled, uh, The Most Extensive Book on Healing That is Written, and it was written by a Catholic, Roman Catholic, and dealing with the question of healing, and of course they made uh, James 5 here one of the sacraments of the church, and they stated that originally the sacrament was for physical healing, but as time went on, it became uh, a, a sacrament for spiritual healing and not physical healing. The physical became secondary and eventually it became the last rites or the last sacrament to be given to a person before they die. Now it's quite interesting that the Catholic doctrine changed but the scriptures did not change. They remained the same. But I think they had a problem between their doctrine and the things that were taught in the scriptures. Now I'm certain that most of us, if not all of us here today, realize that as we study the Bible, we must have a proper approach to scriptures. We must be willing to see scriptures in the light in which they were given, in the time in which they were given, and for the people to whom they were given. Now this epistle of James is written to the twelve tribes scattered abroad. James, though not the apostle James, is nonetheless one of the circumcision. And uh, if you go back to Galatians chapter 2 verses 7 through 9, where Peter and James and John are present with Paul, they give unto Paul and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that Paul and Barnabas would go to the uncircumcision and Peter, James, and John would go to the circumcision. And my understanding in that passage too is they continued to preach the gospel of circumcision. I believe that when we study the epistle of James, we're still dealing with that message written to circumcision believers. Now some have tried to date James earlier because they see a conflict between the epistle of James, at least the doctrine in the epistle of James, from that of the book of Romans and also in Galatians. And I'm sure that many of you realize that Martin Luther has been quoted as saying that James was a right strawberry epistle. That is, he did not 
understand it and therefore he would just as soon have it cut out of the Bible because it was contrary to what he was seeing and understanding as far as justification by faith. So we are here in the epistle of James, which is a circumcision epistle. And the instructions here, I think, are quite evident. I do not discount the fact that there was a time when God would, in a special way, heal men and women and young people. I think God does it today according to his own will, according to his own purpose. Like someone said, I do not believe in divine healing, but I do believe in the divine healer. And oftentimes when doctors have given a man up or a woman up, they say, well, there's nothing we can do, and they only have a short time to live. Sometimes they've recovered. And there have been other times when the doctor said that they should be well within a few days, and it went the other way. Uh, so they don't always have wisdom and knowledge, and the doctors recognize that there is something uh, besides uh, their own medicine uh, that influences uh, the healing process. But we find here, though, that they were to call for the elders, they were to pray over the sick, and that God would raise them up. And I believe that's exactly what our Lord meant. I believe that's what our Lord was stating. But as we have suggested to you before, God's purpose for each life may be different. Now, I want to just contrast this with you. Uh, I don't know how many of you ever have seen uh, this book, Bible Studies for Faithful Men, by Maurice Hammond. He has an interesting section in here on dispensational differences as to prayer and what they were to be praying for. And in one of the areas, well, let's see uh, if I can find it here before me. But anyhow, referring to the epistle of James, the instructions there was to call the elders, to pray over them, to anoint them with oil. And I understand this anointing with oil was really an oil that had a healing strength within it. It was not just the idea that it came and anointed with oil, but it was actually an oil that would uh, help the healing process. So there was a, a medical benefit uh, within the oil that they were using. But in contrast to this, turn with me to Paul's letter to Timothy. And in 1 Timothy chapter 5 Verse 23, Paul writes to this young man and he says, Drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. Now, if any man had the power previously to heal the sick, to raise the dead, it was this apostle. But when we come to his later ministry, he instructs Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach's sake. It was really uh, for the purpose of, of uh, healing or helping the ailment that he had. Now, some people, of course, would like to go here and use it as a license to drink. They, they, they always seem to find verses like this, don't they, to try and put on a little bit different thought to them. But the, the point I make, though, is Paul does not tell Timothy to call for the elders. Paul does not suggest to Timothy some supernatural healing even. But he says, rather, you take a little wine for your stomach's sake and you're often infirmities. So Timothy was having, without question, a physical problem. And then I'm sure that you're familiar with Paul's own prayer back in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 is where we want to go. In verse 7, Paul himself had a thorn in the flesh. Lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messengers of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me, he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in mine infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So he had an infirmity of the flesh. 
Now, whatever this thorn in the flesh might be, I don't question a moment, for a moment that Satan uh, had one of his uh, best men or best angels on the Apostle Paul and Satan unquestionably himself uh, centered upon this Apostle. I believe today that Satan does have those of his messengers that keep us pretty well in sight too. And uh, they constantly are there to, to badger us. But Paul had a weakness. His prayer was answered thus, My grace is sufficient. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Then one other passage in the book of Timothy. In Second Timothy, the last chapter... And verse 20, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20. He states, Erastus abode at Corinth, but Trophimus have I left it at Miletum sick. So here again, uh, Paul has a helper, one that undoubtedly he could have greatly used, and he said, I left him at Miletum sick. So I just simply point out that we have to even approach scriptures in a proper way, a proper manner, dispensationally. And God does not promise us today that if we call for the elders and they anoint us with oil, that we're going to be healed. I think uh, what we pray for, as we've mentioned already during the course of this week, is, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. And one of the first areas we touched upon was the fact in Romans 8 that concerning this body, concerning the physical, we don't know how to pray as we ought. And I think we just have to recognize this today. So unless a person understands the distinctiveness of Paul's message and ministry and God's two-fold program, they're going to lay claim to promises that God has not given. And uh, the result is oftentimes the faith of some folk are destroyed because they lay claim to promises that God has not given us. And when these promises don't come to pass, then they say, well, the Bible cannot be true. Uh, might have mentioned to you a gentleman that uh, was visiting his wife at Madison Convalescent Center, and she was just going downhill physically. Uh, her mind was slipping badly, and he was just completely just torn apart because he was laying a hold of the kingdom promises. Whatsoever you ask faith, believing, and I'm going to give it unto you. And uh, he just didn't have the answer, and his faith was literally being destroyed. So even in this, I think we have to be very, very careful. Now, I'd like to talk more about this, but I want to get into something else. And if you have some other questions on it, we'd be more than happy to look at it with you. Let's go to the book of Daniel for a while this morning. There are two passages in the book of Daniel I want to share with you. Daniel was a man of prayer. And I trust that you have read Daniel's prayer or prayers and also the prayer of Solomon for the dedication of the temple. But first of all, in Daniel chapter 6, Daniel chapter 6, 908 if you have an old Schofield Bible, now there were those of course that did not appreciate Daniel, and if there is a a young man, now Daniel is not a young man by the time he gets thrown into the lion's den. Oftentimes he's portrayed as being very young, but by this time he's getting to be quite aged. But he does, when he's taken away captive into Babylon, he is a very young man. And I think it's a real challenge to young people to see how Daniel stood in his own life uh, against the even the, the king and, and those who were in authority in that day and how God blessed him. In Daniel chapter 6, we'll begin reading with verse 4. Then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel. Now just think about that for a few moments. They sought to find occasion against Daniel. If people sought to find an occasion against us, how long would it take them? What kind of a problem would they have in finding an occasion against us? But you know, they couldn't even find an occasion against Daniel. They had to invent one. And I think that's really telling us something about Daniel's spiritual character. 
they sought an occasion. And I'm sure that many times people seek occasions <laughs> against us too. But uh, it uh, certainly behooves us to live as close to the Lord as we can, doesn't it? And it goes on to say, they sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find none occasion nor fault. For as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. Daniel was faithful to God, and he was faithful to the government. Now, we, are, we try to be faithful to God. But you know, I wonder how many of us, when traveling down the highway, or traveling in the city, have exceeded the speed limit. Until we saw a car that had a bubble mounted on top of it. And what that does to us. <laughs> I, I've seen it so often on the highway. I'm not a fast driver. And that's unusual, I guess, for a preacher. Because years ago, <laughs> preachers were known for having a lead foot. Uh, but I'm not a fast driver. And people will quite often pass me on the highway. And when I, if I see up ahead of me that everything slows down, I know what's happening. I know that there's a different car up there than what I'm driving. <laughs> but you see, we're not always obedient to the laws of the land, are we? We see it says 25, we think 25, oh, 35, 40. I can do it as long as I don't get caught. And I think most of us are not afraid of the law. We're afraid of getting caught. And the strength of any law is in its penalty. That's why those who try and tell us that we're underneath the Mosaic law, that there's no penalty to it, it doesn't really amount to much. Because if you go out and, if, if, if you knew on a highway that they have a 55 mile an hour speed limit posted, and the state of Colorado would say, well, we're not going to do anything to anybody that exceeds it, but that is our law. You don't go over 55, but we'll not punish anybody that does. I think you better get out of the road. You know, if you're driving 55, they'd probably run right over top of you. Uh, it's, it's the penalty of the law. But Daniel was faithful to God. And because he was faithful to God, he was also faithful even to a foreign government that he was serving. They could find no occasion against him. In verse 5, Then said these men, We shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Now what they meant is they had to somehow put Daniel into position where his obedience to God would break the law of the land. And this is what they intended to do. And they knew that Daniel was a man of prayer. They knew that he was a man of prayer. He, they knew he was a man of God. And uh, so we find that they set about to set up this uh, trap for Daniel. In verse 6, Then these presidents and princes assembled together to the king and said unto him, King Darius, live forever. <laughs> they didn't care if that king lived forever or not. <laughs> what they were after was Daniel, not the king. But it sounded very pious, you know. They were just uh, buttering up the king. That's all they were doing. Live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the governors and the princes, the counselors, the captains have consult consulted together to establish a royal statute to make a firm decree that whosoever shall ask a petition of any god or man for thirty days, save of thee, O king, he shall be cast into the den of lions. Boy, I bet you that king's head was really getting big. And just swelling up. Boy, that, you know, that's pretty fine of you guys to do that for me. That, that wasn't what they were doing. They, didn't, they weren't worried about the king. They want Daniel. They were going to get him any way they could. At least they thought they were. And uh, you know the story, of course. In verse 8, Now, O king, establish the decree, sign the writing, that it be not changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which altereth not. And he was going to establish a law that would not be altered. But uh, as we go on here, uh, well, let's, uh, well, let's go on in verse 10. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he Daniel got word of what was going on. Daniel knew that the writing was signed. He went into his house. And his windows being open. I didn't even close the windows, did he? Daniel went where he had gone before. And he went to where the window was open. 
adding it closed the window. He went into his house, his windows being open in his chamber, toward Jerusalem. He kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before, uh, before his God as he did aforetime. Now we find then that this did not alter Daniel's prayer life or prayer ministry. Daniel prayed towards Jerusalem, and those of you who read Solomon's dedication of the temple, his prayer of dedication, Solomon stated in there that if the city is destroyed, if the temple is destroyed, and if men face Jerusalem and worship God, pray to God facing Jerusalem, that God would hear and answer that prayer. And Daniel is doing this. We don't have time, but if you go back and reread Solomon's prayer of dedication, you will see how Daniel follows the very formula that was set up in Solomon's prayer of dedication. He faces Jerusalem and he prays to God. He kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. I have just seven things that I copied down concerning Daniel's uh, prayer life. First of all, we find it has to do with his place of prayer. Daniel had a place that he went to pray. He went into his house. Secondly, Daniel's courage in prayer. The windows being opened. The windows being opened. Now, when you are traveling, perhaps, and you stop at a restaurant, whether it be McDonald's or whatever, that's one of my favorites, but uh, when you sit down to eat your food, do you bow your head in prayer and give God thanks? On more than one occasion, when we have done that, we've had somebody come over to us and say something to us to the effect, you know, I admire your courage. And... Uh, we're very appreciative of the fact that we had done that. I've never had anybody come over and ridicule me. It wouldn't bother me anyhow. But uh, I have had people come and, and tell us they really appreciated the fact that we had done that. So Daniel was courageous in prayer. His direction, as we've already mentioned, was toward Jerusalem. His attitude in prayer was that he kneeled upon his knees. And... Uh, I'm not saying that we should always kneel. But I do believe sometimes it is good for us to get down on our knees before God. And I think in this manner we are acknowledging uh, the fact that He is our God. And that we are worshiping Him in this way. Daniel's regularity in prayer. Now this is where I sometimes have a problem. I sometimes get so busy serving the Lord that I don't always have time to pray as I should. I'm thankful that I can pray no matter where I'm at. But uh, Daniel had a regular prayer life. There was regularity in his prayer. Also, Daniel gave thanks in prayer. It was thanksgiving in prayer. Gave thanks before God. And finally, it was continuance in prayer as he did aforetime. So it was not something that Daniel did at the spur of the moment. They knew where Daniel would be at that hour of the day. They knew what he would be doing. He had done it before. Daniel was not ashamed. And he went to God just as he had before and he prayed. Well, we'll not go into what takes place after this. I'm sure that many of you are quite familiar with the record because I want to go into another area of Daniel's prayer life and that we've mentioned before in the ninth chapter of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 9. And uh, we'll find here again a pattern for prayer as far as Daniel was concerned. In verse 3, I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keep the covenant and mercy to them that love him, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. Now, Daniel, in verses 1 and 2, is concerned about the future of Israel as a nation. 
He knew Jeremiah's prophecy that there would be 70 years of desolation upon Jerusalem. But Daniel wanted to know from God what beyond that point. What was Israel's future beyond that point? And so Daniel is spiritually interested in Israel. And I, it impressed me that Solomon's prayer of dedication was a spiritual prayer. Daniel's prayer is a spiritual prayer. Not praying for material things, but rather praying for spiritual things. You see, the spiritual should always have priority over the material. Our main concern should always be for a spiritual healing long before we are concerned with the physical body. Now, I understand. I know what it is to have pain. I have headaches sometimes that just about wipe me out. I've never quite figured out why or what does it, but they do come. I know what it is. And I've said to the wife, sometimes you just don't realize how sick you can get and not be dead. I tell you, you feel like you're just about there. And somehow the next day you revive a little bit and you're on your way. But it just about wipes you out. But it's the spiritual that we're mainly concerned about. Because we have this treasure in earthen vessels. That the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. God has given to us this treasure, this glorious message. The word of God entrusted to us in earthen vessels. Now, there's nothing beautiful about the vessel that we have. And our brother mentioned this the other day as he was speaking. But it is not the vessel that gets the glory, is it? There are vessels unto honor. There are vessels unto dishonor. There are vessels of gold and silver, and there are earthen vessels. The earthen vessel was not a vessel that drew a lot of glory. And that's the way it ought to be in the ministry. If in the ministry the preacher is getting the glory and not God, I'm afraid there might be something wrong with the preaching. Now don't let me lead you astray. We appreciate your telling us that you enjoy the ministry. We realize that. But nonetheless, if you don't remember who my name is, six months from now, if you remember what I've been teaching, I will feel I've accomplished something. Because it's what is being taught. It's the word of God that brings forth the fruit and brings forth the increase. Well, Daniel was concerned then about the future of Israel. He set his face unto the Lord God by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Daniel humbled himself just as much as he possibly could in his prayer before the Lord. And I think, brethren, you and I, too, need to come to God with humbleness of mind and heart. We have nothing to boast of or glory of at all, have we? The story is told about the preacher one time who was praying, and he prayed, Oh, God, make me nothing. And a visiting pastor said to him afterwards, he said, Brother, you don't have to pray that prayer. He said, You are nothing. He that planteth is what? Nothing. He that watereth is nothing. And so every time I stand up to speak, there's a nothing before you. <laughs> so you don't have to pray that God will make you nothing. You are nothing. But we have to have a humble spirit and a humble attitude in prayer. We should always realize the privilege that we have even of lifting our voices heavenward to Almighty God in prayer. I don't think we should ever just take it for granted. Uh, it's there, I understand that. But I don't think we should ever t uh, just take it, well, it's due me and therefore I have this right. I think we should always be humbly appreciative of the opportunity that we have even entering into the presence of Almighty God. Brethren, you and I could not hardly get a, an audience with the President of the United States. I doubt very many could get an audience with the Governor of Colorado too quickly. And yet, in a moment's time, we have an audience with the God of the universe. With the creator of all things. In a moment's time. He is available to us. He is accessible to us. And he hears and answers prayer. And so Daniel. Humbled himself before the Lord. Even in sackcloth and ashes. In verse 4. I prayed unto the Lord of my God. 
and made my confession. Now this was the way that God dealt with Israel. But what I find to be extremely interesting is they could not find fault with Daniel. But Daniel identifies himself with Israel the nation and after all this is what he is concerned about. He's not concerned about Daniel. He's concerned about Israel. Because Israel was God's covenant people and Daniel wanted to know what was the future of that nation. And he identifies himself with that nation. I made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God. The what? The great and dreadful God. Have you ever thought of God that way? You see, there's a principle in the Old Testament scriptures. God blesses those who bless him. God judges those who dishonor him. God said through Moses when Israel was about to enter into the land underneath Joshua's leadership, Moses said to Israel, God has promised he'll bless you in your cities. He'll bless you in the country. He'll bless you in, in childbirth. God says he will bless you in every way if you bless him. But if you don't bless God, he's going to curse you. And he'll curse you in the city. He'll curse you in the country. He'll curse you in every way that he would have blessed you had you been faithful. So to Israel was the promise of blessings or cursing. They made the choice. Now I don't know why Israel, having seen and experienced the hand of God's blessing upon her so often, why she did not stay in that position but we find that more often than not, God had to judge that nation so severely that we just, you know, it just makes our, our heart aches, our hearts ache rather, to, to see the judgment of God. But that's the way God worked. Uh, I heard a pastor, I, I believe it was Stephen Olford, might have been, maybe not, but I listened to a tape by one pastor, and he said it's amazing that God's principle in the book of Romans is so much different than it was in the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, God blessed, God justified the just. Today, God justifies the unjust. God blessed the righteous. Today, God saves the sinners. A beautiful contrast. And uh, it's, it's an interesting concept. And as, as you go through and see, you'll see that that's true. So, that, yes. Wasn't the de wouldn't the definition of righteous be different in the two dispensations? One would be based on works or obedience, and today it's based on the heart or the sin nature. Well, I think we, we are looking at righteousness in two ways. We're looking at imputed righteousness that we enjoy, but there is also the righteousness of our lives. In the book of Matthew, when the Lord was speaking to the religious people of his day, in Matthew 5, uh, and speaking actually not only to the religious, but speaking to the people of Israel, God said unto them that unless your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceed the righteousness. In the book of Revelation, I believe it's the 19th chapter, where they are clothed in white linen. The white linen is the righteousness of the saints. So there was a righteousness that God did acknowledge in the lives of the people. And God honored that righteousness. The, the old covenant was based on, if you will obey and keep my covenant. And so as long as Israel lived as God told them to live, they enjoyed the blessings. But when Israel went away from God, they were judged or cursed. Whereas today, God justifies the ungodly or God justifies the unrighteous. It has nothing to do with our manner of living. Now, I believe, as we've talked about before, our fellowship with the Lord is broken, not by God, but by man. 
Our fellowship is broken when we're not living close to the Lord. We don't have that closeness of fellowship. Not because God has moved, but because we have. And when I get straightened out in my life before the Lord, my fellowship is once again there. I was talking with Mrs. Baker because 1 John 1, 9 has come up for a number of times over the years. And uh, I said to her, I wonder how many families there are that work on the principle of what some suggest in 1 John 1, 9. I wonder how many homes, mother and dad, the children have gotten together and said, all right, now we're going to have a rule in our house that if you sin and you don't confess that sin, you can live in our house, but we're not going to have anything to do with you any longer. I wonder how many of us have that policy in our lives. I tell you, my dear friend, if you have that policy in your marriage, you'll destroy your marriage. You'll destroy your marriage. If you make that the basis of fellowship in your home, you'll destroy your family. Now, uh, that's all I'll say on that right now. <laughs> we want to go along further in here. So, Daniel is, is confessing in verse 5. Now he, he acknowledges God does two things. God judges when people are not faithful, but God blesses when they are. In verse 5, we have sinned, we have committed iniquity, and have done wickedly. We have rebelled, even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Daniel is saying to the Lord, Lord, what you have done is just. What you have done is right. Your disbursement of the ten tribes into Syria, your judgment of Judah into captivity in Babylon. Lord, you're righteous in what you've done. And we acknowledge that. We've sinned. We deserve exactly what has happened. And like I've said, I'm glad I don't give what I deserve. Aren't you? <laughs> we thank God for that. But Daniel is acknowledging, verse 6, Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants the prophets, neither have we. Was Daniel uh, really among them? No, no. Daniel was living a life that was above reproach. But he's identifying himself with his people. They're his people, Daniel's people. They're God's people. He wants to know about their future. And this is what Daniel is pleading for. Verse 6, And neither have we hearkened unto thy servant, servants the prophets, which spake in thy name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, to all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness unto thee. But unto us, confusion of faces, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and unto all Israel that are near and far off. And I have these two marked in mind near and far off because you find it up in the book of Acts to those who are near and afar off and some of them have said well here are the Jews and here are the Gentiles the Jews are the near the Gentiles are the far off oh no the near was Judah the far off were the ten tribes See? to those which are near and to those that are far off through all the countries whither thou hast driven them because of their trespasses that they have trespassed against thee and I would encourage you to go back into the book of Deuteronomy when you have time sometime and read what is called the Palestinian Covenant where you have the blessings and the curses set forth by Moses and Moses knew that Israel was going to fail God and Moses told them God's going to scatter you. <laughs> he knew that because he knew what kind of a heart they had. One thing about Israel they were always stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart. They always had ears but did not hear. They always had eyes and did not see. They always had a heart and did not understand. That was not only true, as Paul makes mention of it in his ministry, that was true of Israel throughout her history. That's just the nature of that nation. It's just their nature. And, and so we find it throughout. And so we find in verse 7, then the last part, through all the countries, whither thou hast driven them, because of their trespass, that they have trespassed against, against thee. 
O Lord, again, to us confusion of face, to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against thee. David said, Lord, against thee only have I sinned. Against thee only have I sinned. And when David had sinned against God with Bathsheba, David knew the thing that God wanted more than anything else was a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Not the sacrifices. David knew that. He said, Lord, if you wanted sacrifice, I would sacrifice. I know that's not what you want. It had to be the broken spirit and the contrite heart. And then the sacrifices were to follow. In verse 9, to our Lord, again to our God, uh, mercies and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. Now what's Daniel pleading for? He's pleading for mercy and forgiveness. My dear friend, do you realize today that God has been merciful to us? Do you understand that? God has been merciful to me. The sentence of death was already upon me. I was guilty. I could plead nothing but being guilty before God. The story is told about the man who threw himself upon the mercy of the court. And he said to the judge, all I want is justice. That's all. The judge said, my dear man, you don't want justice, you want mercy. Isn't that what we want today? I don't cry out for justice, but I do cry out for mercy. God was merciful to me. Paul writes much about the mercy of God, doesn't he? And how we thank the Lord for it. Well, this is what Daniel is pleading for. He's not saying that Israel is any better now than they were before. But he said, Thou art a God full of mercies and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against thee. Neither have we obeyed the voice of our Lord God to walk in his laws which is set before us by his servants the prophets. Yea, all Israel have transgressed thy law even by departing that they might not obey thy voice. Therefore the curse is poured out upon us and the oath that is written in the law of Moses the servant of God, because we have sinned against him. He said, Lord, it's just like you said it would be. Well, we understand that, Lord. He said, we're guilty. We've rebelled. We've sinned. We've gone astray. Lord, we're, we're here because of our own doings. But uh, let's go on. Therefore hath the Lord watched upon the evil and brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all his works which he doeth, for we obeyed not his voice. I just want to make a comment on this. One question I hear so often, perhaps from an unsaved person, might be this. Uh, when you're dealing with them about salvation, preacher, what about the heathen? What about those who have never heard? I think it's just trying to get us off the issue is what it is. But what about the heathen? What about those who have never heard? It's interesting that in Paul's letter to the believers at Rome, Romans chapter 3. Paul never questions the righteousness of God in sending anyone to the lake of fire. What Paul wants to know is how can a righteous and a holy God let any of us sinners into heaven? That's what he wants to know. It is not a question is God just in condemning anyone to the lake of fire? The question is, how can a righteous and a holy and a just God be just in letting any of us into heaven? And he answers that. That God can be just and the justifier of them which believe because Christ paid or settled the account on Calvary's tree. Otherwise, God could not do it. God could not be just and allow you and I into heaven unless the sin question was settled. And brethren, it only takes one sin to keep a person out of heaven. One sin. When Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, they didn't commit adultery. They didn't commit fornication. They didn't go out and commit murder. They didn't even go to an X-rated movie. You see, they didn't do any of the things that we call sin. They disobeyed God. They rebelled. And I believe that Sir Robert Anderson says that all sin is rebellion against God. 
by one sin and by one man's sin, death entered into the world and death passed upon all men for all of sin. Through that sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, God drove them out of the Garden of Eden. Now, my dear friend, if you and I have so much as one sin in our life undealt with, we can't go to heaven. Because God could never allow sin or sinners into heaven. But the fact is, Jesus Christ took care of every one of them. A-L-L, all of my sins. So I don't have to worry someday when I get up there, God says, well, there's one that wasn't settled. I'm sorry you can't come in. Now, I've been declared righteous. I've been justified freely by grace without a cause. You see? All right. So Daniel continues to, to deal with this now. Uh, going on into verse 12. He hath confirmed his word which he spake against us, against our judges that judge us by bringing upon us great evil. For under the whole heaven hath not been done as hath been done upon Jerusalem. Brethren, Jerusalem was just laid waste. Do you know that there was a point at that time when the women even boiled their children and ate them? So severe was God's judgment upon that city. Jerusalem almost became a laughing stock of the nations. When they would walk by, they'd just shake their head. Scattered you. But I'm going to honor my name when I regather you. God's name is going to be magnified among all the nations of the world. There's going to be a day, my dear friend, when Jesus Christ comes back as King of kings and Lord of lords, that every government in this world is going to acknowledge the true and the living God. We don't have that today, do we? We don't have it today. In that day it shall. And even in Egypt... And the other nations of the world, if they do not come up during the millennium to Jerusalem to worship God, if they do not send up their emissaries there, God said, I'm going to withhold the rain. I'm going to send plagues. People have a wrong concept of the millennium. The millennium is not no sickness, no death, no suffering, no sorrow. There will be sickness, there will be death, there will be suffering, there will be sorrow in the millennium. And that's why I'm glad I'm not coming back down during that period of time. Brother, my citizenship belongs to the heavenlies, and I'm looking forward to being up there throughout all of the ages to come. But during the millennium, it won't always be that way. Well, let's go on. In verse 13, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this evil has come upon us, yet made we not our prayers before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand thy truth. Therefore hath the Lord watched upon the evil and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works which he doeth. For we obeyed not his voice. The Lord our God is what? Righteous. Righteous. You see, that's why we plead with the unsaved. God is not unrighteous to send you to hell or to the lake of fire. He's righteous. He has no other choice. He has no other choice. The greatest sin that anyone can ever commit is the sin of rejecting God's gift of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the greatest sin that anyone can commit. Amen. You see? It, it's, not, it, it's not because a person is an alcoholic or a person is a drunkard or a person is, is homosexual or a person is an adulterer or an adulteress. That's not what's going to keep them out of heaven. The only thing that will ever keep a person out of heaven is their rejection of Jesus Christ, God's Son, as their Lord and Savior. God gave heaven's very best. Can you imagine God giving Christ for our salvation, giving us this gift, and then we say to God, I don't want it. I'm not interested in it. How would you feel if you were to give someone a priceless gift, maybe that has cost you dearly, and you would give that gift to somebody, and they would take it and say, I don't want anything to do with your gift. How would you feel? Not very happy, would you? 
We see, this is what God offers. He gives us the gift of salvation. God says, here's my son. I nailed my son to the cross of Calvary. I laid all of the sins of mankind upon him. My son was rejected. My, my son was forsaken. Christ cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God said, I've done all of this for you. I'm giving to you this to you as a gift. It has nothing to do with your works. It's a gift. And people say to God, I don't want your gift. I'll go my own way. I'll do my own thing. And God says, all right, that's up to you. But I can do nothing else but to judge you and sentence you to second death, which is the lake of fire. God says, I can't do anything else. The only way of salvation is through faith. And so Daniel is saying, we've not obeyed his voice. Daniel is not saying, God, you've not no right to, to judge Israel like you've done. Daniel's not saying, God, you've no right to destroy the city. You've no right to allow the nations to do what they're doing. Daniel says, God, you've been right in everything you've done. We've been wrong. Brethren, isn't that how we were saved? We came to God and said, God, we're, we're wrong. We've wronged you. But we thank you for your salvation. Well, let's go on. Uh, in verse 16, O Lord, according to all thy righteousness, I beseech thee. That's beautiful. Daniel pleads upon the righteousness of Almighty God. He's not trying to argue with God. He's not trying to reason with God. He recognizes God, His right, His righteousness and His holiness. O Lord, according to all thy righteousness, I beseech thee, let thine anger and thy fury be turned away from thy city, Jerusalem, thy holy mountain, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people are become a reproach to all about us. Now therefore, O our God, hear the prayer of thy servant. Can you almost feel with Daniel as he prays? With a heavy heart, and maybe even with tears running down his eyes. Oh God, hear our prayers. Lord, we're in a mess down here. It's an awful thing. Hear our prayers, Lord. Now therefore, O oh our God, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplication and cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. O oh my God, incline thine ear and hear, open thine eyes and behold our desolation and this city which is called by thy name. For we do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousnesses, but for thy great mercies. Then saying, Lord, I'm, I'm not pleading for your mercy because of our righteousness, but rather just on the basis of your mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken. Hear, forgive. Hearken, defer not for thine own sake, O my God, for thy city and thy people are called by thy name. And while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yea, while I was speaking in prayer, even, at, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. And then dropping down to verse 24, and our time is, well, let's go on with verse 23. We have time yet. At the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art, what? Isn't that beautiful? Greatly beloved. Ah, oh, my dear believing friend today, you and I are also greatly beloved. In the beloved, accepted am I, risen, ascended, and seated on high. You see, Jesus Christ is God's beloved Son. And when we're saved, we're taken out of the authority of darkness, we're translated into the kingdom of the Son of His love. 
Christ is the beloved. I'm in Christ. I too am the beloved. In Christ. And my heavenly father just delights. In blessing me. Well. Daniel is spoken of in just this beautiful way. Greatly beloved. Therefore understand the matter and consider the vision. Seventy-sevens, seventy weeks as it reads, but seventy-sevens are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make atonement. The word reconciliation is not a proper word here. It should be the word atonement. And if you have a Schofield, you'll notice it in your margin. Uh, Paul is the messenger of reconciliation. To make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophesy and to anoint the most holy. What was the answer? God's answer to Daniel is, Daniel, there are 77s determined upon your people. 490 years, Daniel, and God is going to bring in the kingdom. God's going to fulfill every promise he's ever made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And brethren, the book of Daniel has created many problems to the modernist because they cannot stand the thought or the idea that any prophecy could be so accurate given so long before. But might I also say it creates a problem to the covenant theologians? Those who would say that God is through with Israel as a nation? that they are spiritual Israel today. Have you ever stopped to consider how many different groups there are that consider themselves to be spiritual Israel? Isn't that amazing? But this does away with all of it. God says to Daniel, Daniel, your people have got a future. Seventy-sevens are determined upon thy people, and Daniel, you can mark them out. And brethren, when that command went forth to rebuild the walls in troublous times, From that moment on, God's clock concerning the fulfillment of the kingdom began to tick. And the minutes became hours, the hours became days, the days became weeks, the weeks became months, the months became years. And we come up to that time at the end of 69 sevens when Messiah is cut off. Just as God said, at the very time God said, His program was right on schedule. God always is, isn't he? God is always right on schedule. In the fullness of times, God sent forth his son, made of a woman. Have you ever considered why it was that God sent Christ into the world at that time? It's his own time, wasn't it? The fullness of time. God's always on time. And you know, one of these days our Lord and Savior is going to come. The last member of the body of Christ is going to be added. He's going to be right on time. Right on time. There won't be any strikes to hinder us from getting aboard. There won't be any delayed schedule. There won't be any wrong passengers on the way up either. But we'll be on our way to glory. Seventy-sevens are determined upon thy people. What an answer to prayer. And of course, there is a great deal of study here, isn't there, that could be developed. Maybe you've got a question or a comment as we come to the last part of this session. We'll still have one more session, I believe, yet this afternoon in our question and answer period. And I guess that will kind of do it up for us uh, this year. I just want to thank every one of you for the privilege of being here with you the opportunity of sharing with you some of God's Word, sharing with you perhaps from the heart oftentimes. Uh, Because much of what I've given you does come from the heart, does come from years of experience in the ministry, uh, years of the Lord dealing with our own heart and dealing with our own lives. So I just want to thank you again for your wonderful attention and, and for, I believe, the Spirit's ministry. Uh, in these meetings that we've had together and we'll look forward to this last one. So unless there are some questions, we'll dismiss it this time.
Well, shall we just bow our hearts then? Lord, what more can we say than just thank you? But we just pray, Father, that as we close out this day, and as we go back into our fields of service for Thee, that perhaps through something that's been said, through the Word of God, through the Spirit's ministry, each one of us might be better servants. And we'll give you praise for it through your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.